Online, Ultima Online was Ultima Online one, one of the original was, MMORPGs. Was one of the yeah, original. Yeah. And, and was way more successful than they ever expected it to be. They had no idea what was happening. Yeah. Um, and so he, he basically um, became famous for all of those games. I mean, working with Richard was definitely really interesting. I had the office right next to him. Richard, this guy, actually went to space. He did. Um, and in fact, he, he did that and, and trained for it while we were making Type of the Rasa. So he wanted to go to space. Damn it. And he was going to try to figure out how to get there. And the Russians um, actually... Like, yeah, give us some money. We'll Give us some money. We'll send your stupid American ass into space. Yeah. And so, but the way you get to do this is number one, you give them loads of money. And then number two, you actually go to Russia and you um, spend it's like three to six months in basically astronaut training with the Russian astronaut. So then, yeah, so he got all certified, I guess you would call it. And then he actually went to space and, and was there for a little while. Um, Did he make that as to, as into a promotion at all? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about the promotion. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the D3 Podcast, Drunk Developer Diaries. We're at the bar, so pull up a stool and grab a beer as we talk to game development professionals about how games are made, how you can get into the industry should you be so inclined, and hopefully hear some of their stories along the way. I'm Ryan Woodland, the current technical director at ZeniMax Online. And I'm your co-host, Jeremy Morrison. I've been working as a producer and an editor in broadcast television and indie film for over a decade. I'm the founder of Harbourcraft Films, a video and film production company whose studio bar we are recording from in beautiful Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> the views and opinions expressed on the D3 podcast by its hosts and guests do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which its hosts or guests are now or will be affiliated with. Specific information and personal details may be omitted from recordings to protect the identity and reputation of those discussed. And with that, Ryan, who do we have at the bar tonight? Tonight at the bar we have Joe Berba. <laughs> I always love that. Uh, Joe is the uh, the live director at ZeniMax Online. We're actually co-workers here in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, he works on Elder Scrolls Online as well as a number of other projects. But he goes way back to the, I guess, early 2000s in the game industry. He worked as a producer. He worked as a community manager. You've worked kind of all over the live realm. So uh, this podcast is going to be about all the stuff that happens once you make the game, which is actually completely fascinating. So, Joe, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? <laughs> doing good tonight. Uh, so this is uh, Drunk Developer Diaries. So, of course, the most important question, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking a Founders All Day IPA Session Ale. Mm, very nice. Jeremy, what are, you, what are you drinking? It's the Miller Lite. That's all. You're on the Miller Lite. <laughs> I'm, I'm changing it up. I have, uh, I have sake tonight, and uh, we left the bottle in the freezer way too long, so so it's a sake slushy, um, delicious. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll see how this takes us through the uh, through the podcast. <laughs> so Joe, uh, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, where are you from? You're from Texas, right? I am from Texas. I am from Austin, Texas. I was actually born in New Mexico, but we moved to Texas pretty quick. Um, I was two, I think, when we moved to Texas, and so I lived in Austin almost my whole life. Been around a couple other places, but 
sort of kept going back to Austin over and over. <laughs> Austin is a nice town. Mm. That's uh, like the best part of Texas, I hear, right? I think so. Yeah. I think it depends what kind of Texan you are. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> For me, it's been the best part of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you're in games now, but you didn't grow up in games. Did you grow up as a gamer? I did grow up as a gamer. I played tons of games as a kid, mostly Nintendo okay. stuff. And then as uh, my dad was a computer professional, and so we had, like, my very first computer was an Osborne. Two. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's correct right there. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I, the, this is the first time the train's gone by. Yeah, it is. Uh, in case uh, in case the listeners don't know, we're, we're in uh, Jeremy's studio right next to the railroad tracks. So yeah. That's a, a real Baltimore train. I think, and you got stuck on the way over <laughs> I <did>. here. <laughs> I did. When I got here, the train was parked in front of the basically the driveway to get into the studio, so I had to sort of hop over the train to get here, but... It's an adventure. I've yeah. had to do that before because sometimes it'll park for a long time. But I think I think it's like this time of year. There's a lot of like train traffic. I don't know. It really? seems to be more busy than normal. But um, well, you yeah. should uh, you should get that train simulator game. I should. Mm. Right. That's pretty popular. Yeah. <laughs> I think in Japan. <laughs> Uh, all right, so uh, were there any games for that system, by the way, or was that just it was like, like it was all like it wasn't even DOS. It was like oh yeah, yeah, that was CPU way yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't have a hard drive, and only it had two floppy drives. Oh wow, two so, floppy drives. Yeah, that was so big. you would get yeah. My dad had like these. There were these little games. They were like shareware games or whatever, and you would put the disc in. And there were the, and the five and a quarter all, up. Yeah, five right? and a yeah, quarter. Yeah. It was text games, like yeah. And he actually he had done some programming, and he would pro he. To, to teach me math, he programmed a duck hunt game. And no so these kidding. little ducks, and it was sort of like duck hunt on Nintendo, but this was way before that. And so these little ducks would fly, and there would be two ducks that would sort of fly at ASCII, you know, up. And there would be numbers for their bodies, and you would have to add them together or whatever and put in the answer. And if you got then... That's so um, awesome. Yeah. It, it's a, <laughs> that's that's really You should have thing. sold that. So, yeah. So I played both sort of Nintendo and then... Um, I had consoles as they started coming on and, and all that kind of stuff. And so played a lot of games, but it wasn't like I was like, I am going to join the game industry. Right. This yeah, is what well, I'm going I mean, to do with my life. I've I, don't, said it before, I don't know how like, many people do that. Though. I think. Well, I think back then nobody even nobody knew you knew. could. No. Like it, it, it wasn't even a thing. I, I know when I got in, I didn't know that you can get paid to do it. I, yeah. just, I was like, that sounds cool. So uh, let's do it. So, well, so what did you go to college for? So I went to college for philosophy <laughs> and technical writing, which is, you know, really goes together. Yeah, those seem, those seem yeah. like they go together well. Well, it was like, well, philosophy is not going to get me a job that pays me any money. But, you know, if you can do technical writing, you can at least, you know, find some work. Or whatever. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so both of those. Things. Wow, we're going to have to have them on the philosophy podcast. We actually have uh, an idea of one coming up uh, with a philosopher friend of ours, the philosophy of games. So uh, you got out of school and you didn't go into games immediately, right? You, you no. kind of went into standard Texas industry. Yeah. So I, I mean, I did a bunch of random jobs and things and then I basically ended up at Dell computer, okay. um, back in 97, 98, something like that. So it was kind of back when Dell was, I mean, it was the big, one of the big tech companies. Oh, yeah. Um, besides Microsoft and kind of the well, IBMs they were the, and standards. The and, in Texas and, for, yeah, and they were the yeah. biggest in Texas. And so they're headquartered in, in Texas. And at the time they had just a really, they did all their tech support in the United States at that time. And so they had an amazing like tech support training program. It was like three or four weeks long. And like, it was like a tech support boot camp. And, you know, it, was, it still is primarily a hardware company. And so right. it was very hardware specific kind of tech support. And I started in tech support there. So you were like on the phone. 
phones. On the phones. Taking calls yep. from computer illiterate people. Tech support. This is Joe, man. Take your <laughs> service tag number, please. Um, yeah. uh, I used to do that. I used to work for a software company to do tech support. Yeah. <laughs> Way back when. It's one of my first jobs. Yeah. I think it's great. I think tech support's awesome because you have to listen. Oh, yeah. You have to really learn to listen to people because if you can't ask the right questions and listen to people, you will not be able to help them figure out what's going on. It teaches you that. It teaches you customer service. And then the other thing it teaches you is troubleshooting. Yeah, sure. Right? And how to think of a program or, or especially from a hardware perspective, think of it systematically, what plugs into what, what works with what. And what's funny is that has really, that skill has carried me through my entire career in the game industry, especially now yeah. working in live services. And I, I work with data center infrastructure it's the same thing. It's just a different scale, right? You still have memory, like yeah, you got yeah. your databases, right? You still got, you know, processing power with all the VMs and stuff like that. And so when you go to troubleshoot those things at yeah, three o'clock yeah. in the morning, when somebody calls and says everything's down, it's the same process. And that never happens to you, right? No one ever calls you and says everything's down. <laughs> Not so much anymore. <laughs> I remember I was, uh, I was working at Nintendo and uh, we had just released the, the new slimline, uh, uh Super Nintendo. And one of the things that we took off of the hardware was the little red light that goes on as the power light uh, because we saved like, I don't know, 15 cents or whatever oh, a, a unit. Uh, and the the first people that, that yelled at us for that was the tech support guys because mm. and we never realized this. I guess that was the answer to about half of their tech support oh, questions. That. It was, is the little red light on? Oh, yeah. Uh, because I guess a lot of people wouldn't plug it in or you know, there wouldn't be power and, and they would call. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. That was their first question, is the little red light on? And we took the damn thing out. <laughs> to like, save 15 oh, cents. Oh, we didn't realize that helped you guys. Yeah. We thought that was just stupid. Yeah. Well, Dell did that too. They had, so of course they had a power line on the front and mm. it would do certain things, but then they had four lights on the back and depending on what the light code was and whether they're blinking mm-hmm. or solid mm-hmm. or whatever, and that would tell you all I kinds of things. I still have that on my things. furnace at home, actually. Your what furnace? Else? Yeah, my yeah. furnace at home has a little blinking <laughs> light. furnace? <laughs> it might be. I don't how, think how it is. How often are you trying to troubleshoot your furnace? Uh, don't start me on that one. <laughs> no. It's an old house. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, are, are there any memorable calls that you had on that? Would you just get people who, like, did Did you ever get the, my, my drink holder is broken question? I never or? got that question. Oh, okay. I, I loved reading those Where's stories. The any key yeah that, no, no i never got that either there were, i i i got better stories from other people on the floor <laughs> i think than you know than i did i mean it was just pretty pretty standard stuff and people trying to troubleshoot and yeah, yeah. my favorite calls were so i worked in the there was different accounts of course in the dell universe and i worked in one of the accounts i worked on was the basically the government accounts and so you would get the guys like from the military that would call oh, in yeah, for tech yeah. support which was awesome because they were like this is the problem how are you doing today sir you what know, a great customer <laughs> i mean that's really <laughs> they were great you could tell them exactly what to do and yeah. they would do it and then not do anything else yeah, right. because if it was like if it was someone who was let's say a little bit older, less familiar with technology, you know, they would just be all over the place and clicking on things you didn't tell them to click on or they couldn't find it. And you'd be like, do you have someone that's 12 years old there that could maybe take over for you right now? Because the 12 year olds oh, yeah. knew exactly what to do. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Well, so when, when did you make it out to out of Dell? Did you leave that to go into games or where, where so, did this, where did the, the foot in the door and in, in game start? So funny story is I, I left Dell. I actually left Dell to go write a book about open source philosophy, <laughs> which was a terrible idea at the time. Um, and I ended up working for That's the, visionary. The, though. That yeah, would be a great idea. Now. <laughs> it's a great idea. Now, um, I ended up working for the government. I worked for the state of Texas. Okay. In the Texas building and procurement, which is basically the, the, 
organization in the government that buys everything. Mm -hmm. So like they would buy all of the beds for the prisons, all the bullets for the sheriffs and all the, you know, basically bought everything. And it was this giant organization. Anyway, I did that for a little while and then I ended up following a girl out to Germany and basically doing, um, I did web design and, and I actually ended up doing community management for a local Austin musician and ran her message boards and, really? and stuff like that. And so I could do that remote. And so I followed this girl to Germany, did that remote. Um, that ended poorly <laughs> and I came oh, really home. following a girl halfway around the world. Yeah. That, that, yeah somehow. <laughs> big, surprise. Yeah. big surprise. <laughs> and when I got back, uh, when I got back to Texas, um, I was essentially looking for a job at that point. And a guy that I had worked with at Dell ended up going to NCSoft in Austin and was the head of the technical support department. And he had posted on his live journal page (laughs) (laughs) about how awesome it was working at the game (laughs) industry. And that, you know, the first day he asked, you know, what should he wear to work? And they were like, where pants. <laughs> and uh, he was just talking about how awesome it was and how the receptionist had dyed hair and was reading mm. a comic book or whatever. And I was like, man, that sounds really cool. If you ever need anybody, you know, just let me know. And he was like, I'll have somebody call you. And so they were basically doing sort of outsource placement kind uh-huh. of stuff. And so the recruiter or whatever called me and told me about the job and told me how little money I would be making <laughs> and, you know, kind of what the job entailed. And and he said, well, are you interested? And I said, I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. He said, what's next? And I said, what's next? And he said, well, you're, you know, show up on Monday. I was like, well, there's not an interview because like, this wasn't an interview. Like he was literally just telling me what the job was. He didn't ask me, you know, do you show up on work on to work on time? Right, there's no really, questions. There's none of that. Well, like, once once they heard you love doing menial work for no money. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, and of course the guy that, you know, had the head of tech support had said, basically, I know Joe, he worked yeah. in tech support at Dell. He can do this job. So well, uh, ironically, uh, I'm sure this is no surprise to anybody. That's pretty much how every job in the game industry works is. Oh, yeah. I know that guy. He's cool. That's true. <laughs> and that pisses a lot of people off. <laughs> yeah. 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 It does. It's, it's not quite that informal. Uh, anymore, no, but, it's not. But I mean, that's it's how grown I, up a that, lot. that's how I got my first job in games was yeah. my buddy was making a hockey game and I played hockey and he was like, oh yeah, I know a guy who plays hockey. Hire him. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you also program at the time or did you pick that up? Very little, very oh, little wow. actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had, I had dabbled in, uh, in programming in computers, but yeah, that's, uh, that is the way that it was back then. So, so yeah. this was a, a straight up tech support job. Straight up so tech support. Same thing on the phone. It was it was very similar to doing tech support at Dell, except for it was software based because it was right. about the games. What was NCSoft publishing back then? Because NCSoft was relatively new back then. They were over yeah. from Korea, right? Yeah. So they're a big Korean company. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah. huge in Korea um, and had been huge in Korea for a while. But and they were just starting to make it into the states. They had there. just and just I think within the, the the year before I started or so had started up the Austin studio. And the only game that was out at that time was Lineage One. Yeah, I remember that. Which didn't end up having a huge following here in the states. It's it's a very demanding game, very grindy, and very um, you know if you die you lose experience and it's PvP and it's like just super (laughs) hardcore. But um, in development was they had they had ArenaNet making Guild Wars. They had Cryptic Studios was making City of Heroes at the time. And those games essentially came out kind of right at the same time. And I started about three weeks before either of those games shipped. Okay. Um, oh, actually, Lineage 2, I think, maybe came out too around that time. I can't remember. It's been a while. Um, so, yeah. So, they basically were hiring up tech support to support the games as they were going live in the next couple of weeks. Come in, get trained, support the phones. 
So how did they train you back then to do tech support for for games? Because I I used to know uh, some of the gameplay counselors mm-hmm. at at Nintendo where they would have big binders of you know all the different scenarios about the, yeah, the like hardware, flow charts like, or something or, like or flow charts no. on how to play the game there was, or anything. There was, no. there was nothing. They just no. gave you. So did they the even binder, give you a computer and the, the so game. The information that they gave me was more around policy. It was like you okay. know these are the hours that were open. This is you know the kind of the basic like when you answer the phone, say your name and say you know this thing. These are these are the hours. These are the billing things or whatever. Um, but as far as the tech support stuff, it was just like, hey, here's a computer. <laughs> Here are the games. Knock yourself out. So there, there was, <laughs> was there any like Compat Lab at that point? They or? did have a Compat they Lab. What is a Compat Lab? So it, like well, a compatibility? What is it? Yeah. yeah, a compatibility lab. It's where they have all the video cards and all these different oh, systems. Oh, to make sure, and, hey, let's just make sure you've got the right hardware to even support Well, it was like, game. let's make sure the game runs on an NVIDIA card. Right. Yeah. right? And it was more, the compat lab is more for the developer than it is for I tech see. support. The tech support can go, hey, right. have you guys seen any issues with this particular video card? If you see things over and over or whatever. Yeah, but, I mean, there's just so much hardware out in the, the PC space when you're making yeah. a PC game. I mean, you can only, you're only developing on limited hardware right sure. you don't have you know a weird off-brand you know at the time probably sound cards and, mm-hmm. and video cards and and all that sort of stuff so yeah usually there's and to this day we mm-hmm. we have one there's there's a lab somewhere in the building where you have one of everything and there's a dude who just knows how to build PCs. computers and he yeah. you'll say hey somebody has this bug on this spec machine and he'll go and he'll, try he'll, to reproduce he'll build it, yeah. it and and install the game on it and try wow. to reproduce it well now they also have tons of mobile stuff yeah, right yeah. so like you know we have a website so we test our stuff on mobile platforms and because mobile yeah. is the web at this point yeah and my blackberry won't play angry birds yeah well you should talk to them about that <laughs> it's time to upgrade <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably my, my motorola razor <laughs> isn't doing so well uh, okay so uh were you mainly answering just like install problems my game doesn't run it was usually performance related problems or i can't get it to work at all okay right? you know I, I did anybody call in just to talk like did you get a, ever get any like creepy gamers who just so talk yeah usually well <laughs> no you know nobody ever really called in just to talk but they would call and have a problem and then as you're going through the problem then they wanted to talk about their problem inside the game with either <laughs> other players Players, because NCSoft made all MMOs, right? So it was either right. other players are a problem, or they wanted to ask about GMs and what GMs did. GMs game master, right? Um, or they would be really upset about a ban or something. Yeah, so yeah. they would, you know, or or they would just want to talk about their character, which was actually <laughs> fine. You know, you're like, that's great. I'm glad you're enjoying the game, kind of thing. But <laughs> and did you, uh, did you also have a customer service department as well? Was that in, independent of the tech support? We did. We had a customer service department. QA department, billing department, but okay. it wasn't, they had sort of one person who was sort of unified that was sort of managing that group, but it was, it was pretty separate departments. Right, right. There, yeah. So, uh, how, how, how long did you work in tech support and how did you make it out? That sounds, I worked uh, in tech support for about three months. That's it. All yeah. right. Well, that's that's a short sentence. Yeah, I know it was a, short, a, a lot of people have languished yeah. uh, uh, in, in some of that. Stuff. I was lucky for sure, um, <laughs> and I worked the overnight shift, Ooh. which was pretty awesome. Did you get Did you get international calls on that, or you just got late uh, night people? We did get some international calls, but not a ton. It was just it was just the late night shift, and there was the phones had certain hours, and it was like the phones were on until kind of nine or ten or something like that if I can remember and then kind of just overnight was more email support because I had tons of email support as well Um, so I did that for about three months and then 
um, since I had done the community work for, you know, a local band, um, there was a community position that had come open and, uh, one of the QA managers, um, recommended that I, you know, just apply for it and see if it was something that I was interested in. And I did and, and started doing community. And I did that for about three years, I guess, oh, wow. three, almost four years. So d- describe what a community manager does, because this is actually something relatively mm. new in, in games. It's it, because it's different than customer support. When you it, say new, how long is uh, this? Let's talk about new. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I would argue that the game industry started community management and it started with MMOs. Um, and it started as basically this was back before we really had social media, right? There was just, yeah. if you could get on the internet, you were, you had some technical skill. It wasn't the, what I call the commodity based internet that we have today where you get it with your phone. It just comes right um, and pre-installed. You had to, you know, dial up. And if you didn't have that, you had DSL and that was pretty, pretty fancy. <laughs> so anyway, so community management really started, I feel like with MMOs, the older MMOs and it was the person who basically talked to the players and was the liaison between the developer and the player because some people don't talk to other people well. <laughs> Wait, what? Especially on the internet. And, um, and especially with computer nerds? Especially computer nerds. It's, it's weird. Uh, um, you guys can't see us if you're listening to the podcast. We're all computer nerds, and we actually have a life coach standing behind <laughs> each of us telling, telling us case. how to communicate. Just in case. <laughs> um, and so, and also, you know, if you're working on a game, you're obviously working all the time, and you don't necessarily have time to spend your entire day reading the forums mm-hmm. and, and gathering feedback. And so it was sort of the role of community manager to interact with the community, be the voice of the developer, gather the feedback, and then be the voice of the customer. So you were a bit of a translation layer between developer um, and the community. And then the other part of the job that I don't think gets talked about a whole lot is actually the community building part of it, which is around, hey, you know, getting these people together, sort of moderating the conversation so that it is, you know, happening in a way that is about the game instead of about politics that day or whatever. You really want that community pretty focused on the reason they're here. Um, and then, you know, giving them things to do because people get excited about games and excited about MMOs. And if they're excited enough to want to get into a communal space and talk to other people about it, um, they'll do it outside of their playtime. So they'll do it, you know, at work on breaks or maybe not at breaks. And then, so they're, they're unable to interact with the game right that second, but they want to be engaged with the game. And so that's where the community comes in. And uh-huh. so you give them other things to do and, you know, we would, we would do things like create fun threads and like post your favorite build or post your favorite picture of your character, or, you know, things like that to get them sort of engaged. And then they would, we would do things like throw contests and having game parties and do events. And then we would have meet and greets or, I mean, people still do this to this day, but that's sort of the core of game community management. Mm-hmm. And then as social media started to come in and you started to have these different platforms where gamers could be trying to communicate with you. I remember the transition where, you know, Facebook had sort of just kind of come out. And for some reason, Europe, the European office was the one that was starting the Facebook engagement and trying to figure out how to interact with people and talk to people there. And we were doing MySpace on (laughs) on this side of the fence um, and trying to figure out like, what does that mean? What are people doing? What do they want here? Um, What are they looking for? 
Um, and so as it sort of matured and, and it wasn't really advertising back then, like we didn't, we didn't engage in MySpace because we wanted to, you know, offer your promotion for 20% off. You know, we, we just wanted to be able to talk to you and it was neat. Um, well, and I mean, if you can build a community in your game, you have players who are going to come back, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's good for, it's good for the game. It's good for the, the yeah. people playing. It's, uh, yeah, it's good all around. Yeah. So, yeah, so I really feel like it started in community management. I mean, it started in the game industry, and then it's just evolved as the internet mm-hmm. has evolved, and now brands have communities. Coca-Cola has a community. Oh, like, yeah, I yeah. mean, everybody's going to come. So, yeah, the reason I say it's relatively new is it, it really came in with online games, with, yeah. with the internet, where, uh, you know, back uh, when we were doing, you know, cartridge games, you know, Super Nintendo stuff, N64 stuff, there was no way to find out who was playing your game or, or, or to find out, you know, what their opinion was of, of the game, even, you know, maybe they would write you a letter mm-hmm. back in the day. But, <laughs> like a real letter. Uh, the, yeah, there was, there was no great way to engage. So when online games came on and, and you actually had a connection with, with your players, uh, you had these communities forming of people giving feedback or, you know, you, you w- actually do want to hear what your, what your players like and what they don't like. And with, with live games, you could update your game. So you listen to what people want. You try to give them what they want. You listen th- to them what they hate. And I think that's what the players liked about it too, though, right? Because they felt like this was this opportunity where... I could potentially tell a developer something and have an impact on the game. Whereas with like, you know, here's a single player game that shipped on a cartridge. It's never getting updated. It doesn't matter what I as a player tell you about that. Like maybe you would listen to me for like game number two of that series, but here's an opportunity for me to interact with the developer, uh, something that I'm passionate about. And then maybe a couple weeks later, that change could be in the game. Um, And I think that that, possibility really draws people to the online game spaces. Now we call it games as a service, but um, that's what draws people there and what's Mm -hmm. what's engaged them. And when you look at, and even today, if you look at the size of a community for a single player game on on an official game forum, and then the size of a multiplayer, especially PC game, Just the the size of the number of people engaged with that game is so much higher. Right. Just be, and I think it's that. I think it's that I could potentially tell someone who actually makes this game something, and they might change something, and I might be mm-hmm. the reason. So for game players out there who are wondering if somebody actually does read those comments you throw on Reddit or <laughs> on Facebook or on Twitter about the games, we we actually somebody, do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joe was that person for a very very long was, time. Yeah. <laughs> but I would I would also say that many game developers read those comments. Not everybody oh, yeah. may respond to them. That may not be their not, you know role, but everybody reads the stuff about the game they make. You yeah. can't help it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's like, you know, punishment for your face a lot of times, <laughs> but, you know, I think I think you have to read it in order to grow yeah, as yeah. an artist, right? Yeah, yeah. We do listen to a lot of those opinions, and uh, it's funny because we don't allow many people to respond just because we do put a lot of heart in to our mm. games and it's tough when somebody's tearing it apart mm-hmm. not to not to go fuck you you know <laughs> I, I, I worked seven years on this game you have no idea uh, so yeah we obviously we don't like those responses going out but yeah. uh, uh, people people do uh, feel really passionate about the stuff they do and uh, we we do get a lot of feedback on this yeah. stuff so uh, were, were there any particularly tough times did you have to to uh, what what games what were you running community for at the time so my first gig in community was for City of Heroes which was for that people was a that huge don't know game. was uh, superhero 
as, as you might expect from the name. <laughs> but it was a superhero video game. But the great thing about it was it wasn't associated with any IP, right? So it wasn't like a Marvel game where right. you had all of this stuff. And it wasn't like, you know, DC or anything. So no licensed characters. So there were no licensed characters, which, you know, you get a huge advantage with an IP and that you have a pre-existing audience. And that does obviously great things for sales generally out of the gate. But it gave the players the freedom to kind of use their imagination to come up with any hero. It was their story. They got It wasn't like they were trying to be Spider-Man, right? It was, hey, I get this amazing character creator, which was one of the most, the biggest things about City of Heroes as far as quality concerned. It was just the character creation was amazing. Um, they could create any hero they wanted, create their own backstory. Mm-hmm. It was really encouraging the community was to have that backstory and to and actually role play that, that hero in the game. Um, so that was a great community to get started on because it was, I would say, a lot friendlier of a community than a lot of communities are. There wasn't PvP to start with in that game either. So it was all PvE and it was all heroes. And so you could only play a hero. And so the people that were drawn to that game and to to sort of role play that were pretty nice people. (laughs) I mean, really, like they, they were looking out for each other and, you know, just really, you know, willing to go and do things together. And it was just like the merry band of heroes kind of. So you got like the sweet, easy gig out of the gate. I didn't realize how easy I had. (laughs) I really didn't. Um, I just was like, and I, I mean, I'm not saying it was perfect and that there weren't trolls and there weren't, you know, kind of your standard online community things that happened. But compared to some of the other games that we had in the stable, like mm-hmm. Lineage 1, Lineage 2, which is like almost primarily PvP community, um, like it was just it was a lot easier. They were just a lot more jovial and just nice to each other and f- formed their own little communities and did things together. And that was a great sort of training community. And then I went and did community management on Tabula Rasa. Mm-hmm. which was, of course, neither one of these games exist anymore. Right. Um, Tabula Rasa was Richard Garriott's MMO that he worked on at NCSoft, and it was more space-related. So we mm-hmm. went from sort of superheroes to more like futuristic space apocalypse time. Um, and and even that community was pretty good as well. There was some PvP, but it wasn't just, that wasn't the whole game. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very much a Richard Garriott game where you're, you know, sort of building a world and telling a story and, and so those were actually both pretty good communities. And this was earlier, like, you know, you're talking 2004 to 2009-ish. And so mm-hmm. we just didn't really have as much of the crazy online extremism, I think, that we do these days. So I, I want to dive into Tabula Rasa here in a sec, but uh, the, this might uh, make a good segue into asking our first ever listener question. Oh, what is the listener question? <laughs> so so we, we have our first ever listener question. This actually comes from a, fr- a friend of mine, uh, John Ward, uh, who w- works kind of in general tech. Uh, he's hilarious. He has a bunch of great stories. Um, but he also runs uh, uh, adult gaming community. I think it's called the Adult Gamer. Forgive me, John, if I got that wrong. You mean this is um, like erotic material? Yeah, no. I, was like, I was like, what does no, that mean? Where are we no, going? Unfortunately, <laughs> I would, uh, knowing John, I would hate to hear. And what's uh, the link? It's for a friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to hear uh, John's adult erotica gaming <laughs> stories. Um, but no, it's actually just for adults who game. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, he runs that. But uh, it, this isn't really a question, but it might segue into good stories. He he requested a, a community manager uh, be on okay. the podcast someday, and he says, uh, "Ask him if he was ever responsible for sending a SWAT team to a troll's house, and it turned out to be the wrong house, and they flashbanged an old lady and her granddaughter. If not, he's a pussy." 
<laughs> wow. So, that's amazing. Th- that's actually a true John Ward story. I guess he did that. Wow. But it uh, it segues into the, uh, the, the darker side of community. Have you ever had to deal with trolls or have you ever, ever had to action anybody out of a game oh, like that? Man, there are hopefully, things hopefully, I'm not allowed to talk about. Hopefully you didn't flashbang anybody. Let me try to put this as generic as possible <laughs> in order to keep myself out of trouble. Yeah, you can make up game names if you um, want. We use, uh, what do we use? Project Calamity is our project code name Calamity. for any project that it, you're not allowed to, to um, So in, in a Project Calamity, I mean, obviously there are bad actors and, you know, there are... There are people that do things that are inappropriate and do inappropriate things to other people. There are people who DDoS servers. There mm-hmm. are people that do. Just, do you want to describe what a DDoS so, is? So yeah, so it's basically when people flood the game with too much traffic through any number of ports, which also sounds like some adult gaming. <laughs> um, but they do it purposely in order to in overwhelm, order to overwhelm the servers. either the server or in some games you can actually overload the connection that another player is on. And so you're like you're just trying to grief that player. So I'd just right. be like send like a ton of traffic over to Ryan. IP address and just basically knock him offline, yeah. especially in a PvP game where it's just like you're and so I've I've worked on several games that have had those types of issues and have had to then do investigations, figure out mm-hmm. who these people are because they're causing problems. Right. Um and then send government agencies after them um, or whatever really? lawyers or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, when you, whether you, you know it or not, when you, when you, uh, is this ex- a federal crime because you're crossing well, when, state lines kind of thing? When you accept the terms of service of a yeah. game, yeah. It, it's it like a, every time you download iTunes, you have a terms of service that yeah. you agree to. And that's actually a legally binding contract. And yeah. if you violate that, you can, you know, you, you can't get sued or you can get arrested. You can or, get sued for that. You can't yeah. get arrested yeah, for violating yeah, a, a company service. Service, service, but there are laws against basically doing that type of DDoS behavior Mm. um, to other people, essentially companies, government agencies, those kinds of things. So yeah, yeah, you can, you can get, you can get popped for that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's essentially online vandalism at that point. Yeah, it is online vandalism. But I I mean, have people really gotten arrested or have government agencies have really gone in? Yes. That is a thing that has happened. Yeah. Don't be naughty, kids. Joe will find you. That's a good thing. I mean, that's not playing nice. (laughs) It's not playing nice. And and honestly, and I mean, I hate to say this, I'm going to get in so much trouble, but I feel much satisfaction when that happens. <laughs> uh, and and honestly, and it's not even just because you're messing with my stuff, man. It, it, you're messing with my game. It's not It's not even about that. It's about you're messing with the player experience, mm-hmm. right? You, there are a ton of people who this is this is a thing they do to relax. This is a thing they do to, you know, play with their father who lives overseas or their uncle who's deployed or their brother, or, you know, and they're trying to have some quality time together. And these guys are just they're being bullies. other people. Yeah, yeah, and then and so you know, I get a little satisfaction from <laughs> yeah. messing with them. I mean, I, I feel like it's only fair. I was like, you started it. <laughs> like, if you want to play cat yeah. and mouse, then this, yeah, is, this yeah. is what we're doing. And Joe has the big guns. So, um, yeah. but I think the the thing that's more that's harder than that. That's not hard. That's that's just a thing that happens, and you deal with it. What's harder is when sort of real life happens to people in online games, and unfortunately, people pass. Unfortunately, people have you know rough lives people are you know and then and just some of the stories of of folks um, um sort of living their lives but the great thing about it is the communities that can rally around those people and mm-hmm. be communities for people there are you know there are a lot of people who are can't leave their house mm-hmm. um you know they have issues either they can't um they're not 
enabled in the world to move around a lot. And, you know, these online communities, these online worlds allow them to have a freedom and have friends and have kind of that community. And, and that's the, that's the, that's the other side of that coin. Mm -hmm. You're like, yeah, there's some crap over on this side, but you know, here's the part that you're doing. That's really helping other people rather than just making video games or, you know, people waste their lives. on video games. <laughs> No, man, people, people live their lives in video games. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, why don't we take a little break? Uh, and then because uh, we want to move on to Tabula Rasa, I know you've got some stories about that, and that's going to be a little while. So let's uh, let's take a break, grab another beer, and we'll be back. We'll be right back. The D3 Podcast is brought to you by Ketchikan Charter, the finest charter fishing company in Ketchikan, Alaska. If you want to be called a ho-ho-eating motherfucker by a big Alaskan man, go to KetchikanCharter.com. <laughs> you ever, uh, you ever, you ever been told to pick up the cocksucker by a guy who wears exclusively Star Wars t-shirts? Go to KetchikanCharter.com. I'm going. I'm sold. Oh, <laughs> uh, I love Bill. <laughs> And we're back after hearing that amazing word from our sponsor, Ketchikan Charters. <laughs> oh, we're still sponsored by my fishing company. All right, sweet. sweet. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to get lot, lots and lots of business off of this. There's a lot of crossover between you know game developers and, and fishers. Oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, there's like zero, right? <laughs> there's, there's, there's me. Well, there's Shut one. Up. There's one. Shut up. Come on. I count. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, okay. So we moved on to Tabula Rasa. You, you were uh, a community manager there and that was when the game was in development right yeah so, so that was when we were in development and I hired a couple of folks um, to come and do community with me on that game and then a little bit after that I actually moved over into production so how'd you make that that shift from community to production? Well, I'd done community for a while and and I was just pretty young in the industry and and just sort of young in general feels like back then um, and just wasn't really sure you know long term what I wanted to do um, the interesting thing about community is a lot of people either do it and that's all they ever do like that's what they love and that's what right, they do man. forever or they do it and then they end up in something else and one of the things that I I loved about doing community work was it exposed me to so many other departments in the in the company you know i got to work with marketing a lot i got to work with dev a lot of you know just sales and and legal there was so much there was so much legal stuff it was crazy right. and you just got so much exposure to all of these different pieces of the industry that i really sort of had a moment of well what do i really want to do long term and I actually thought about going into um, programming Ooh. for a while because I had, you know, such a tech background. Yeah, because you know. your, your philosophy degree. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, and, you know, when I worked at Dell, you know, yes, I started in tech support, but I had actually moved into technical training and, and built SANS and clusters and taught people how to work on those. And so I'd gotten kind of an infrastructure hardware background. Sure, and, yeah. And so I, I thought about that. But, you know, when I was on Tabitha Ross, I'd really, as the community lead, had gotten involved with the the general leadership of the game and had had the experience of being part of the leadership team and, and those roundtable discussions when designs there and QAs there and productions there and communities there and, and marketing's there and sales is there and, and having these conversations about the future of the game. And, and I was like, you know, if I, if I go into programming and this is how ambitious I was back then, if I go into programming, it's going to take me five years to get back to the level of influence that I have now. 
And so I decided not to do that. And I decided to go into production instead. And I had, when I was working for the government, I was essentially a project manager mm-hmm. um, for the government. So I had some project management background and, and just decided that that's what I kind of wanted to do and was interested in a little bit long term. You know, of course, you know, some of your previous podcasts, you talked about how producer means something different yeah, in yeah. every I think, single. I think every, yeah, I was just about to ask <laughs> so, that question. Yeah. To you. Thank you yeah. for listening. Yeah. I, uh, um, but, so, yeah. So, what, what is production to you? Yeah. So, you know, at the time on Tabula Rasa, this was a little bit of an older kind of game industry view of production in that, you know, you sort of had an executive producer and you guys talked a little bit about that. And we had an executive producer on Tabula Rasa and, um, this was when Agile as, as a development methodology was really starting to gather some steam and they wanted to transition Tabula Rasa from more of a waterfall development model to Agile. And so that was actually part of me moving over was, Hey, we're going to start doing Scrum and, you know, we need a little more production bandwidth because it's not just, you know, this one guy in an office with a giant, you know, spreadsheet mm-hmm. and, you know, Microsoft project, you know, making the project. Now you've got people that have to actually interact with the team you know, really on a daily basis and run stand-ups and do those kinds of things. And so um, sort of ended up doing a bunch of that for programming teams, so tech teams. So we should probably explain those terms because yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. those are going to sound really weird. Uh, Scrum and Agile, that's kind of a norm in the industry now, but what they're development methodologies, but what yeah. what, are, what do they mean? It's, it's how do you tackle the problem of you need to make a video game from pieces of paper where people wrote down general ideas to, hey, we shipped a thing. And there's a couple of different methods, there's tons of different methodologies and ways of, it, of tackling this problem from a project management perspective, um, especially since you have so many different disciplines like art and programming and all these things have to come together. And so, you know, waterfall is the description of a methodology that a lot of people use for a long time. And it was where you got everybody in a room and you kind of sat down and you kind of figured out how long you think it would take to do things. And then somebody went and locked themselves in a, in a room with Microsoft Project and basically scheduled the whole thing out from the day you started until the day you shipped. And it was like, here's the schedule. <laughs> and <laughs> Of course, the the disadvantage of that is that never works. Yeah, that's like, never realistic, that's right? That's fucking fiction. <laughs> like from the minute you do it, and yeah. it's outdated from the minute you finish. Like it just it changes all the time, and so. An agile methodology is more about having general ideas of kind of where you want to go and where you want to be at certain times, but then you kind of chunk it up and you you decide, hey, let's let's get with management, let's get with the people that are making the game, let's figure out what the priorities are, let's figure out what the stories are, and a story is essentially, as a, as a player, I would like to be able to shoot guns kind mm-hmm. of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's very basic and <laughs> terrible, but it, just as an example, and then you take that story to the team that would actually be working on it. The idea is that that team is cross-functional, so you've got, you know, in general, you've got somebody that's going to do some programming, some art, some QA, some, you know, folks in there, and then they, that team actually goes in and figures out how to solve the problem and make the thing happen. And so as a leader, you don't, you should be mostly agnostic to how the team decides to do it. You're (laughs) mostly interested in do they meet the outcome of the Mm -hmm. story. And so it's just a different way of doing things. It also allows for, you know, you get to, you decide, hey, we're going to, we're going to work on this thing. And this is the story or stories we're going to do in this two, three, four week, six week time frame. And then after that, the business is allowed to reevaluate the mm-hmm. priorities, reevaluate what we're doing. But in that magic six weeks, let's say, they can't come in and shit all over us <laughs> and tell us to do something completely different. Now, 
that doesn't always work in practice, right. but that's the theory. Right. Yeah, you know, one of the ways I've I've talked about this a lot is you know with games now taking four, five, seven years mm. uh, to make. If you looked at what the game is on day one versus on day you know two thousand or, or whatever it ends up being. It's totally different, and so, then on day four thousand, it's completely yeah. different from day two thousand. So you, you can't you can't start a game and say here's exactly what the yeah. game is going to be, and have that come out the end in, in seven years. It's it it changes daily, it changes hourly. The, all the different you know what the mechanics are, what the art is, or what the requirements are. Maybe a new console comes out, or maybe you mm-hmm. know some new new hardware comes out that, that you have to support. Or maybe your original idea wasn't very fucking fun. <laughs> like, and that's <laughs> oh, that the never thing, happens. right? Like, I mean, the difference between I'm going to make. Outlook, right? We have very clear. Yeah. You, you don't have to make Outlook fun. Yeah. Right. But you have to make games fun. And that's the hard part. Yeah. And that's the part that takes iteration. And that's the part where you can get into a six week cycle. You can make a thing. You can get to the end of it. You can show it off to the company. You can have everybody play test it and everybody can go, that sucks. <laughs> and you have to start over. Right. And you can't account from, for that if you're looking at a piece of paper and you've got to ship three years later. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you have to have that ability to iterate, get feedback, make changes and and then go forward and that's why I think most of the game industry at this point is agile mm-hmm. because they they need that time and that iteration and that feedback loop in order to find the fun. Yeah, I think uh, I've always said it's it's a way of kind of admitting that this is going to be chaos for the next four years. <laughs> yeah. We have no idea how this is going to end up, uh, but it's a, it's a way of controlling chaos in the short term. Very much so. While understanding that you know maybe a year out, we know we know that's all blurry and fuzzy. Yeah, uh, so we can't. It's, it's it on honest. Paper. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, more honest for yeah. sure. You know, Jeremy and I have actually discussed this ad nauseum mm-hmm. uh, at the bar. Jeremy does scheduling for movies, and uh, it, it's always fascinating to me to to look at his schedules for you know one day shoot or a seven day shoot where you have stuff planned down to the minute or several weeks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, generally to the hour. Yeah, I mean you want to. Yeah, try, but, try but to stay like your way. your level of granularity is fascinating to me. Yeah, and you have to be because it's well, yeah, it's just a different sort of project. But it's money. I mean, it's the same thing, and yeah. and it's time and money. Yeah, you know, which games everything I'm hearing, it's the same. It's yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah very similar. Definitely. And I mean, there are times where <laughs> you're in development, and sometimes things are scheduled to the hour. Uh, you know, I've, yes. I've, I've had some experiences lately like that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you have. Yeah, in your world, that, that's definitely true. <laughs> I mean, I think especially as you get closer to launch, yeah, exactly. it's just yeah. like crunch time yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so now and now we, you've admitted that game development is complete chaos, and here, <laughs> here you are as a new producer on, on Tabula Rasa. Now, Tabula Rasa is kind of a... At least at the time, it was kind of a famous game. It took a long time, yeah. and actually, we should back up and give the the history of that game because that's Richard Garriott, who who was yeah. famous for the Ultima. Yeah, tell series. me about him a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Richard Garriott is famous for making the Ultima series, um, which was one of the the earlier um, RPGs, and you know, a lot of his stuff is very um, is he's very famous for world building, building very interesting universes that have very defined systems of virtues mm-hmm. and. And, you know, very role playing kind of thing. And he did a bunch of that, you know, by himself in his basement, you know, Mm -hmm. with his, you know, old computers and, you know, put them in Ziploc bags with a printed, you know, cover and sold it consignment at the local computer store. Real old school. Yeah. Like real old school game development. Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, very much so. And so, yeah, he had made the Ultima series, which is hugely popular. His company, Origin, got bought by EA. They made, a game called uh, what's the game 
Was it Say the thing. They did Ultima, Ultima Online. Online. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, brain oh, yeah. fart. Yeah, that was, I mean, Ultima Online Ultima was, one, Online one, of the original was, was one of the original yeah, yeah. Uh, It's massive. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and was way more successful than they ever expected it to be. They had no idea what was happening. Yeah. Um, and so he, he basically um, became famous for all of those games. And then... He left EA and went and did some other things, but it, it, one of the guys who ran NCSoft um, basically loved Ultima Online, and when Richard was essentially available over a period of time, he ended up hiring him and starting a studio in Austin mm-hmm. for Richard to basically make a game for NCSoft. And what was that studio? And so that was Destination Games. Okay, and that's actually, that's who you worked for, even though you worked NCSoft. Yeah, so Destination, yeah, so Destination Games was a wholly owned studio of NCSoft. So we were all part of NCSoft. And so I was, quote unquote, working for NCSoft when I worked on City of Heroes because Community was a publisher function. And then I moved over to Destination Games. But it wasn't, like, there was very little delineation. Everybody just worked for NCSoft. So it wasn't like... It wasn't like Destination Games was like this separate entity in any way, shape, or form. All right, yeah. So uh, tell tell some stories about TR. Uh, so TR was was pretty amazing. I mean, working with Richard was definitely really interesting. I had the office right next to him, and so I could <laughs> the walls were pretty thin, <laughs> and I, I could definitely hear some some conversations that were happening. That was quite an education. <laughs> um, but he was just a great guy to work with from a community perspective. He was always the 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 creative director that would be willing to do an in game event. With you, go to the meetups, talk with the the player, and he could. I mean, he was great with the players. Right. He would. Well, he's Lord British, right? He would. Yes, I and mean, he, he was known as his character, as Lord his Br- character, General was, British and TR, and right? Ger- General British and TR. He was very into that kind of being part of the world, and I think it gave the player that my character's part of the world and your character's part of the world, but we're part of this world together. And, (laughs) and he was great with the players. He would talk to them for hours about their builds or their characters. He really cared. He really does. And as a community manager, I was like, this is fantastic. (laughs) Sure. So, uh, you know, because not everybody that makes games is like that. Not everybody wants to, you know, spend a whole lot of time with players. And I mean, I remember being at a meet and greet in Austin, Texas at Dave and Buster's and we were kind of coming towards the end of the meet and greet and all these players there and Richard been talking for hours. I remember doing Irish car bombs with players (laughs) and Richard and having a race about who could drink them fast enough and <laughs> and he was into it and he would just stay for the whole time like See, so he it, was great it always that. comes back to drinking and video it games, does. It? It does. <laughs> so yeah so he was great for that we did some crazy things like uh i don't know if any, everybody knows this but richard is a boxer as well oh, i actually didn't know that. and so he had I, I can't remember the boxer's name that went to the gym that he went to, but he was a pretty famous boxer. He was kind of a, a pro boxer. Um, and he was one of the lighter weight guys. Um, and we actually had a Friday night fights community event in the game every Friday. And because in the game they put in, so you could actually hit people with your fists. Like that was like a thing you could do. Okay. Um, so like you could do barehanded, you know, fighting. And right. so they would, you know, you would strip all your clothes off. You'd be wearing your like your little, 
little, you know, it was a military kind of game. And so, the, you know, you'd be wearing your like white, you know, boxer, <laughs> military boxer things and you'd have your, you know, your gloves on or whatever. And they would like have fighting matches, one 1v1 PVP in the game. And then we would have people that actually from the community that would run it and announce it and this whole nine uh-huh. yards. And one of the community events we did is we had Richard Garriott as Lord, as, as General British in the game fighting this like famous like boxer <laughs> dude. And we like, and so like I like worked with the boxer dude and the boxer dude's agent to get the guy set up with a computer because he didn't really play computer games or anything like that or know what he was doing. And then they had like this <laughs> fight in the game. And so he would do crazy things like that. Like Richard was, was, is, has always been the guy who's just like, well, how do we get that done? Yeah. Like just kind of willing to leverage whatever relationships he has. or Marketing wise, that's genius. I yeah. Mean, I mean, it was fun and it was, the players loved it. Everybody had a good time. So, um, and then he's just a great storyteller. I mean, as far as the press stuff, cause when you're in community, you end up doing a lot of marketing and press events and you have press people just come through to play the game as, you know, pre-order previews and things like that. And, and he was just a great person for PR cause he just had so many stories and just, just kind of never, he just never ran out of energy. Like, and he would just keep going and, and do that. So that was a really great experience. I got to learn a lot from him. He also is very into the world building. So like mm-hmm. he created an entire um, hieroglyphical language for TR. Just um, himself. He d- just did this. He, I think this he did it with time. whoever he was married to or dating at the time okay. or whatever. And they kind of did this together. But like at his house on the floor, they would just, you know, draw symbols and then, you know, and sort of figure out what the words would be. And then that that language was in the game and it was kind of all over and it was part of the lore and there would be these glowing symbols and you would have to figure out all these puzzles and things like that. And it, it, he did a lot of really cool stuff. It's amazing to me. We were talking with uh, with Morgan Godat, uh, mm-hmm. who who you've met um, uh, on the last podcast, and he was talking about Will Wright. And it's amazing mm. for me to hear about these you know high level creative guys and how you know the 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 the, the big ones really do embrace this kind of spirit of fun of the spirit of play. You know oh, yeah. how, how how they're just big kids. Like yeah. they they not only are they you know making money off these games they create, they're playing the games. Well, yeah, Richard. Richard's house was like a castle. Like he had, like you could go up into the top, and he had, like you know, an astronomy, you <laughs> like know, an observatory, like an observatory yeah. at the top of his house, and he had, like you know, crossbows on his wall, and there were hidden. I fully believe everybody should have a crossbow. Yeah, and like <laughs> hidden stairways and a dungeon, and like because why not? Because <laughs> why not? Because yeah. you know, basically, you have all this money, and you you know, you're yeah. a nerd. He had a like a like it was like a some sort of art style painting of DNA. It was like a drawing of DNA, like by Crick or something like that. He had all sorts wow. of just crazy things. He had like vampire hunting kits, <laughs> like, like about, and like as one does. Yeah, I, you know, it was just and so you know, and he would have these parties. He would every year he would throw a Halloween party that had some theme. He was also a, a magician. And just had like, he would have magicians come and like they would do a whole night of magic at different stations throughout the grounds at the house. And I mean, it was just crazy. And I wasn't even there in like the heyday of like origin and all that kind of stuff when things were really crazy. It was much more subdued at that time. But, but, but everybody at the company got to go to these. It it wasn't just like executives or anything. It was, was I mean, pretty much. Yeah. That's awesome. It just went and it was, it was, it was really cool. Um, so there's that kind of stuff, but it also meant that, you know, when it came time to do things like, Hey, let's do a launch event for the press, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't like we threw a party somewhere. Like 
We took over Richard's house and they had actors come in and dressed people up as aliens from the game. And we, we had the press come meet us near the office at a hotel bar. And we, we sort of got them all together and here's this, you know, the events that are going to happen. We're going to drive you out to Richard's house and we're going to have a nice party and these things are going to happen. But little did they know that it was a whole setup kind of men in black a little bit kind of a story that was happening during the whole event. And, you know, we had one of our guys from, I think he was in CS or QA at the time who just looked like a homeless dude, like (laughs) kind of walk into the hotel and just start like his hair was all crazy and his eyes were real big and he was just wandering around. He was like handing people these pieces of paper and they had like the language from the game written on it. And it was kind of this, and he was like, you know, spouting these conspiracy theories off you know and they were all everybody's looking at this guy and like security threw him out of the hotel they didn't realize he was part of the gig or whatever and so we did we get on the bus and we we're starting to go and they had the cops pull us over and they definitely had a couple guys there was like one guy from marketing with like these men in black you know sunshades on and you know this whole thing and that we're you know looking like holding up a piece of paper and looking for people on the bus as they inspected the bus and then you know we get to the event we're doing the event and they his brother, Robert, who ran the company, he was a CEO of NCSoft Austin, was also a helicopter pilot. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> Conveniently. And so literally they had an alien invasion at the, at the launch party and, and Robert's flying the helicopter above, you know, the event and he's got the spotlights and doing the very men in black thing and it's just tons of, and there's people shooting guns and there's alien suits and I mean, it was, I have never experienced anything quite like that. It's so elaborate. Since then, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's, uh, I, I, TR, I know, is full of stories. I unfortunately had no connection uh, to, to those days in, in that area. But uh, one more story, because it's the one that I know. Richard, this guy, actually went to space. He did. Um, and in fact, he, he did that and, and trained for it while we were making Type of the Rasa. So... I guess there was some shenanigans around trying to work with NASA to actually go to space because his dad was a, a NASA astronaut. Of course. His, dad, his dad had actually been to space. Yes, yeah. his dad yeah, had yeah, actually yeah. been to space. Most of our dads are astronauts. Most. <laughs> um, and so I think he tried to work it out with NASA, but it didn't for whatever reason. And and so he was he just, he wanted to go to space. Damn it. And he was going to try to figure out how to get there. And the Russians um, actually... Like, yeah, gave us some money. We'll send Give us some money. We'll send your stupid American ass in the space. Space. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but the way you get to do this is number one, you give them loads of money. And then number two, you actually go to Russia and you um, spend, I was like three to six months in basically astronaut training with the Russian astronauts and you learn Russian and like you have to, because you have to be able to read the buttons on all the stuff in the actual sure, I guess spaceship, everything's in right? Cyrillic, yeah. Yeah, everything's in Cyrillic. So <laughs> you had to learn Russian. They, and they don't localize to, for you? They do not localize <laughs> for you. Um, and so he, he, yeah, he was actually attending space camp, I like to call it, um, <laughs> while we were working on TR. And so he, he would actually call in to morning leadership meetings, um, from Russia <laughs> and space tell camp. us, and tell us about the, about the, uh, terrible Russian food he'd eat. He liked it, but he was like, yeah, I had this black bread and borscht and like, I was just like, Arr. that sounds great. And like he had to get in pretty good physical shape to go. Um, and, so then, yeah, so he got all certified, I guess you would call it, um, to do that. And then um, not too long, 
I'm trying to remember if it was before or after the game launched, and then he actually went to space and, and was there for a little while. Um, Did he make that as, to, as, into a promotion at all? Yes. <laughs> Let me tell you about the promotion. Of course, he had to. It had to, it had to be an elaborate plan. The guy making the space game went <laughs> yeah. to space to promote right. the space game. That's awesome. Yeah, so yeah, there was there were some like Tabula Russell-related things he did while he was on the space station. But one of the, the thing was is that he we did this thing where you could get your DNA shot into space. <laughs> It's part of like like a thing they were shooting. I don't think I want to know how they collected not, DNA. Not that way. Not that way, Ryan. It was, I think it was DNA kits like, like swabs or something yeah. like that. But we actually had a contest, like a community contest, where you know you had to enter and and do this whole thing. And like Stephen Colbert was part of this for some reason. I think Stephen Colbert's like DNA really? went into space too. <laughs> yeah, like that was part of the deal. And so one player, a couple players or whatever, basically got their DNA shot into space with with Richard as part of the, <laughs> part of the promotion. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah. th- this wasn't a thing where they just like shot him up and brought him down. He was up there for like a week and a half. Yeah, right? he, he was, was on the space station. Yeah, he was on yeah. the space station and he was doing some experiments because he's also done like he went down to the Titanic and like he did oh, some yeah, super course. deep space, I mean, deep sea diving things and had done experiments because I mean, his dad was an astronaut and, and a scientist. And yeah, he so, was on Skylab, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And so like he grew up with lots of scientific experiment type things. And so he's done a bunch of that stuff to help. And it was partially to help fund the trip, right? Like, so if you will go do a experiment in space for a company, then they will help sponsor part oh, of your sure, trip. And yeah. so I think that's part of, you know, how the the trip was paid for in general because it was not cheap. All right. So note to self, we got to get uh, Richard Garriott on the podcast. Yeah. That I got to hear about this space, <laughs> space station. He's a great adventures. storyteller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so, uh, so, well, uh, let's get a little bit back uh, closer to, to Earth. Um, here and uh, let's let's talk about how Tabula Rasa shipped and and mm. kind of what happened uh, with that. So how was the game received? And yeah, and so the game shipped. It was a lot of work, um, and you know, I, I it just didn't quite do as well as everybody expected it to do, which is often the case. In fact, I've very rarely been on a project where it, it shipped at any sort of expectations, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it didn't quite do as well as kind of everybody had hoped it would do. And sort of at the time, um, NCSoft was just, you know, really pretty demanding and, and wanting their investment back out of it. And, yeah, yeah. and unfortunately that game didn't actually remain live for very long. Um, I was on it for a little while after ship, um, kind of running some of the live updates and, and stuff like that. And then, um, actually ended up going over to a different game called um, Dungeon Runners as a producer for that game. And then uh, not too long after that, um, NCSoft went through a big kind of layoff and right. kind of shut down. And they basically put a timetable on the shutdown of Tabula Rasa. And I ended up not being at the company anymore um, and went off to do other things. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tabula Rasa was definitely... A labor of love and it just wasn't, it just really wasn't what people were quite expecting. Right. I mean, it was much more of an action MMO than kind of people were expecting at the time. And in a lot of ways, uh, there was a lot of stuff that happened in that game that ended up being things that happened in, in future MMOs. But at the time, it just really, it just wasn't what people were mm-hmm. really looking for. And it was also around the time that WoW was really big and it only been out a short time and, and that was kind of the new okay. hotness. So, 
Um, well, yeah. and just to wrap up on TR, what was the what was the original production schedule on that? Because I remember really looking forward to that game, and I thought it was like two or three years, and then it took well, four, and then it went to five. Every MMO starts at two or three years, and we're going to do this in two or three years, <laughs> and then you they can't, they, can't make it below <laughs> two years. It's, it's like it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it, once you reach that point, is it kind of like, well, we've already got so much into this we got to see it through i mean sometimes how do you make that yeah i think it, you know well one of the interesting things about tr is it actually ended up going through a reboot and when it started it was like you were going to be able to have musical instruments as weapons and it was really super high fantasy mm. almost and like it was just a very different like aesthetic and vibe and they kind of did that for a little while and then went through a reboot and then it became as Paul Sage likes to say a little more boot and a little less camp. <laughs> um, and so like, and then it became much more militaristic kind of story of aliens and stuff like that. And you were in an army and you were fighting and it sort of just, it was much less fantasy and mm-hmm. much more kind of, you know, aliens, you know, soldiers fighting aliens kind right, of right. deal. And so I think that was part of what took so long was, you know, you go through two or three years of development on this one particular aesthetic and style and all this kind of stuff. And then you're like, uh, that's not working. Let's mm-hmm. go a different direction. Um, like I like to say, if you haven't made the game you're working on three times, it's not triple A. Like, <laughs> um, uh, I, like I think I got a so, piece of yeah. wisdom. <laughs> Uh, okay, so yeah, you ended up getting laid off. We've had a bunch of those yep. stories already on the podcast, and we will, I'm sure, continue to have those stories <laughs> because that's the game industry. That's the way it happens. Uh, and so what happened from there? So then I went and worked on uh, one of the large publishers, who shall remain unnamed, Okay, opened a very small studio in Austin to um, make an MMO out of a very high-level IP. And basically hired some ex NCSoft folks to do that. And I ended up going over there and being a producer working on that. We worked on it for about a year and then they decided they didn't want to do that. They wanted to make a Facebook game instead. So they did. <laughs> um, wow, that's a really, that's a, that's that's a, a big deviation. It is there. a big deviation. And it, well, at the time, at that particular moment was, the Facebook game right. thing right. was happening yeah. and it was big and Zynga was making a lot of money. And so everybody was trying to figure out how they could do that. And the, the, the development cycles were much shorter. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, that I have to point out to a lot of younger people in the industry is, is, you know, games cost money to make. <laughs> And a lot of times, as much as we like to feel we're artists, games mm-hmm. are funded by people with lots of money at stake, and and what'll happen who aren't necessarily gamers. So what'll mm-hmm. what'll happen is is stuff like that uh, a lot where people see MMOs. That's the next big thing. Let's make an MMO, and that drags on. And then they see Facebook, Facebook. These people are making millions off mm-hmm. of Facebook. Let's make a Facebook game, and and games do really turn on their funding like yeah. that. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that happens, and. People try to catch on to industry trends pretty quickly, and you know you see it with VR. You see it. With, oh, yeah. You see it with battle royale games right now. Sure, sure. Like, huh? Whatever's making all the money Jeremy's right now. Pl- Jeremy's a big battle royale. Yeah, game. like they. But I think what people need to remember is that those things also go through phases. Like you don't really play a lot of Facebook games anymore, really. I mean, that's that's not the future of the industry. Right. I mean, the 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 tastes turn over time. Yeah. Um. So. 
I think you know it's cliche, but content is king. If content you have a good game, if you, have good, if you have a good side-scrolling shooter uh, yeah. uh, nowadays, it's it's going to sell. People yeah. will play it. Yeah. Um, okay, so you get you get out of uh, your foray into Facebook games, and, so, and yeah, yeah. So we didn't work on any of the <laughs> Facebook stuff, um, but yeah. So we were we did that for about a year, um, and then I ended up working at a indie studio called Redfly Studio in Austin. Yeah, yeah that's right. Which is they made Mushroom Men. Um, when I was there, we worked on the Force Unleashed two. for the Wii which was super fun like because I had worked in MMOs for so many years and and even when I was working at the the little like incubator studio that was going to be an online game and then um, you know so everything had been online and live and just like all this stuff and then I went to go make these games on the Wii, which you could not patch. So when yeah. you shipped that game, that's it. It's locked. like that was it. I was locked, and it, I, I I describe it as like my vacation in the game industry because like <laughs> you couldn't do anything if you wanted. You to. couldn't do anything. I, yeah, and we like pooped out like four, four or five games while I was there, and I had shipped like two games in five years <laughs> at NCSoft or whatever, right? Oh, yeah. and, um, so it was like it was like boom, boom, boom. Got a lot of experience. Did production there, um, and really enjoyed kind of that indie experience and enjoyed that vacation of hey when you ship that game it's over and like you get to gold master which is like when you're basically done with the the game and you send it mm-hmm. off to the printer right um i remember there being a, a point on the force unleashed 2 where literally the the first party qa so the publisher qa comes back and is like there are zero bugs and I was like, that happens? <laughs> like, literally, yeah. that actually happens at some point? It was the most glorious moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that, um, really had a good time there, really learned a lot about... The thing about Redfly, since they were an indie studio, they did they did a lot of pitching to publishers to try to pitch, okay, let's do this game, where they yeah. would have publishers come in and say, hey, we want to make this kind of game with this IP. Can you you know build us basically... Uh, PowerPoint deck, some design documents, and a demo kind of vertical slice, which is like just a little five to 15 minute playable version of the game, which has like some of the core mechanics. And then you try to make the art and the the environment be kind of as close to what you want the shipping to, but it's a tiny little piece, right? So like a little vertical slice of the whole thing is like a demo of what they might get. And what I learned from that- a teaser trailer or something in movies. And what I learned from that was just how much hustle there is. Yeah. Just how much hustle there is in the indie space to try to do that. Because, I mean, we must have pitched, I mean, just 20, 30, 40, you know, and they would just, they would just go and they could just kind of pop them out. And it was pretty impressive to see that speed and then to be on that end where you're, a studio that's been hired by a publisher to make a thing and then be beholden to that publisher and their deadlines and their timelines mm-hmm. and their budgets and their, you know, schedules and, and have those guys come in and, you know, how's everything going and stuff like that. And so it was a really interesting, it was a very different experience than working for a publisher that mm-hmm. has all that stuff in house and everybody just kind of takes it for granted. Right. <laughs> the, uh, it's interesting you mentioned vertical slice. This is something I've had to deal with a, a lot in games as a, a tech guy. But uh, it, it, this you'll hear this a lot for anybody out there who's, who's you know working on indie games that wants to get them published. You'll you'll hear this that we we want a vertical slice of the game. And, and what kills me is a lot of people don't understand. They think you know if your game has ten levels in it, 
you could make one level in a tenth of the time that it takes you to make ten levels, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't work that way because mm-hmm. all of your core game mechanics, yep. all it, it's, yeah, don't it's, you have to have like ninety percent of it done <laughs> even to just do <laughs> one level? That, that's that's the the, the that's reason the it's so part. funny is that, is that yeah, it's like to make the, your first level, it's like ninety percent of of your development time, and then the other yeah. nine come because you just you, knock you've, those you've out, built all those mechanics, mechanics and all that. Well, there, I mean, there are tricks to that, right? The, of like, course, yeah, I mean, if you use very common engines, right, that you've made other games in before, a lot of times you can leverage previous code bases for a vertical slice. Because in a vertical slice, the publisher doesn't necessarily own that. And so you can take mechanics you've used on other games. You can take... It's not system, going public. You can fake it. Yeah, right. You, you don't have to make the final implementation of things. So yes, it, it is a lot more work than just a tenth of whatever. But a lot of times you're, especially if you've done this a lot, you're yeah. able to leverage some things and you're like, well, we're going to bust this out in Unity and yeah. we'll use some existing art assets. We'll use yeah. the rocks from the Conan game and we'll use <laughs> yeah. the, the, you there's, know, There's whatever. a lot of smoke and mirrors. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. But yeah, it's, it's, always, been, it's always been funny. But that's what you learn yeah, by yeah, working yeah, at sure, those companies do, yeah. is, is those tricks to try to be able to, you know, pump out a vertical slice with a high level of quality, high level of gameplay right. without having to reinvent the wheel every single time you start over. And, and you know, on the, on the flip side of it i've i've had some friends now who who are uh, not in games that they want to get into games and they, they'll come to me and they're like ryan when i'm gonna you know, i'm gonna start my studio i've got the money but you know we're gonna take three years to develop our core tech and and you know we're, we're gonna just get this right and we're gonna make our engine good mm-hmm. and uh you know then we'll start prototyping gameplay and what a lot of people don't realize is it just doesn't work like that if you're dealing with a publisher if you're dealing if you're anything but mm-hmm. self-funded you need to show something month one you need to show something month two. You don't get this three years of just writing code and, yeah. and making things work. You have work, to show right? progress pretty yeah, quick. Yeah. And especially now with mobile. Like, oh, oh my yeah. gosh, the mobile timelines are... I, I love the way that mobiles actually push the industry. I think are they compressed, mo- the timelines? Yeah, are? oh yeah. You can uh, you can make yeah, a mobile game like nine months. Like it's, it's fast. Um, and... And because it, the other thing about mobile is it's really pushed games as a service, right? Sure. Like it's pushed live stuff so far, so fast, where the MMO industry has been very pioneering for a long time and has done a lot of the stuff that mobile did when mobile started as far as like, hey, having an in-game event or, you know, those types of things. But sort of the lumbering timeline of the massively multiplayer genre is much slower and mobile, you know, shoots out and they're like, okay, we're going to make a game in nine months or less and we're going to do events every week and we're going to push updates and it's just fast, fast, fast. And now you see sort of, you know, the tail biting, you know, the dog where, you know, it's like, okay, now mobile's really pushing all of the AAA PC and console games to really have those sort of accelerated schedules because gamers are starting to expect, hey, there's going to be an event every other week week in this game there's going to be something new to do there's going to be new content we're going to have packs we're going to have just tons of new stuff because they want new content you know people will binge on those games and then they want more to do in that particular in that particular game and so i think mobile's really pushed the mmo industry and now the 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 game industry as a whole to really more of that model and moving faster which i think is is awesome yeah it sucks for me (laughs) <laughs> Work faster, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get right on that. More, uh, more 
uh, Mountain Dew, I guess. Well, yeah. let's take a quick break. Yeah. Um, and we will be right back after these. I don't think we've got any more messages after. No, we can make one. We can make a message for something. Okay, we'll make a message. We, we'll, we could do, we, your studio could uh, sponsor the podcast. We could, yeah. I, it's not as exciting as Ketchikan Charters. <laughs> Just being yelled at by a, <laughs> yeah. a dirty, yeah, yeah, drunken yeah, Alaskan really. man. Yeah. Yeah, we can get him down here. We can, he, we can do wintertime promos for your studio. I like with, it. With, with nice. All right, we'll be right back. We'll be right back. So uh, while we were just talking about your uh, your vacation into uh, Fire and Forget games, how did that move you back into a massive online world? Yeah, so, I mean, we shipped a couple of games and then, you know, like I said, the indie, indie studio scene is really like, you know, it's a little feast and famine. It's like, you know, you land a couple of gigs and you build up a studio and you've got like 60, 70, 80, 90 people. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you, those projects end and then things get tight and yep. we were in a bit of a tight time and, you know, I was still working there. And one of the things I loved about it was I got to wear a lot of different hats. Mm-hmm. I actually ended up, um, being the director of QA for a little while mm. at that studio. And I just, I just got to do a lot of interesting things. Um, but without a bunch of projects kind of on, you know, going on and they were very much just pitching, pitching, pitching. Um, I was just kind of like, I, I think it's time for me to go do something else. And I had talked to some friends that were um, from NCSoft that were working at Vigil and Visual was working on Dark Millennium Online, which was essentially a, a Warhammer yeah. um, game, and they needed some production staff to come help with that and that had experience. And so I went over to Vigil and started working for them um, as uh, I wasn't the development director, but I was the production director. Okay, um, and so went and and did that for a little while, and then uh, THQ, which was the publisher that was running Vigil, decided that they didn't want to do Dark Millennium Online anymore, um, and so I ended up working on Darksiders. Two, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was a really cool game. It was really interesting to work on. the The production quality was super high from an art perspective, and just learned. Uh, I actually ended up doing production for um, a UI team, a sound effects team, a VFX team. Oh, cool. You know, my my time in production was really about working on a lot of different development teams. I worked on uh, a tech tools team. I worked on mm-hmm. programming teams. Uh, like I said, I worked on all of those sort of downstream mm-hmm. um, teams. Um, and got a I got a wide exposure to that stuff as well as a wide exposure to production in general. 
Um, but then I had, had been working on Darksiders for a little while. Um, they were getting reasonably close to ship, um, but it just wasn't my passion. You know, I just really missed being in alive at that point. So while I had worked on games that were supposed to be live games, <laughs> right. like they never ship. So um, I, I really just kind of missed the juice of working on a live product and having that regular feedback from customers and, and, and kind of, uh, there's just something about that, that I, that I really enjoy and really, um, kind of wanted to do. And my friend, Paul Sage, um, who, uh, I had worked with on Tabula Ross, or he was the creative director mm-hmm. for TR for a while. And he had gone to Zenimax online studios, um, to work on the Elder Scrolls online. And of course we didn't know that at the time they weren't allowed to talk about that at <laughs> right. all. Like it was a super big some secret, sort of you know, code name, yeah, some sort of code name. And, um, so, but every couple of months, you know, he would sort of be like, so how are things? I'm like, well, things are pretty good. Da, 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 da. And he's like, are you ready to move to Maryland yet? And I was like, fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> Austin to Baltimore? And, you know, part of the problem is I grew up in Austin oh, sure, and my yeah. entire career had been in Austin. And so, you know, the thought of, of moving to Baltimore, uh, you know, East Coast even really just, you know, I just it didn't sound like something I really wanted to do. Well, and it's interesting, too. The game development industry is so small. Like, I bet mm. when you got to, to uh, Vigil, you, you had probably worked with half those people before. Oh, yeah. right? I mean, that, that was me Especially in, in, in Seattle yeah. where, you know, a studio would close and you go to the next studio yeah. and you're like, oh, hey, it's all the same people. All the people. same people. <laughs> I mean, uh, they're, they're, so it's, it's a bit like leaving your yeah, family at that point. Yeah, it is a bit like leaving your family. I even, I remember I interviewed for a, a different company at some point in there. I think it was before I went to Vigil. Um, before I took the job at Vigil, I interviewed with another company and it was a publisher. It was a very big publisher. Mm-hmm. And they had kind of a published producer job, which is a producer that works at the publisher and basically kind of oversees development of external studios for games. And they offered me the job to do this, but it was it was up north. I don't want to say where it is because you everybody would know exactly who it was <laughs> because this is the only gig in town up there. Right. And it was a very cold part of the United States. <laughs> and while the, the opportunity really appealed to me, you know, I, I was sort of, I sort of had this moment of Zen um, before I was supposed to go interview with them. And I was like, what am I doing in this industry? Why am I here? What do I really want to accomplish? What do I want to do? And I was like, you know, I want to make games with my friends. And if I went up there, I didn't know anybody. And, you know, at the same time, um, I had all these friends that were vigil and they wanted me to come help mm-hmm. them. And they, they knew I could help. And so, so I ended up taking the gig at vigil. Um, anyway, so Paul would poke me every, you know, a couple of months and just say, are you ready to come to Baltimore yet? And again, this is how you get games or jobs and games is yeah. your, your friends call yeah. you and ask you. Yeah. That. That's how I came to Baltimore yeah. as well. As in, uh, and one day he, he poked me and, and asked that question and I had, I had a really bad day. <laughs> <laughs> this it is, was a really bad persistence day. Persistence pays off. Really bad day. He was waiting for that day. He was waiting for that day. <laughs> do, you think and, he, do you think he knew? Do you think he had moles? I, I, if it's possible. Like Joe's, Joe's really he's mad. Like that, so, yeah. <laughs> He's like that. Who knows? Um, and so when he when he asked that day, I said, "Well, what are you looking for?" And um, and he and then this, the hard sell starts, right? And so he's like, "Well, it wasn't even really the hard sell." He was like, "Hey, you know, we're working on some stuff really exciting, and and you know, I think we need a a, a community manager, community director up here, and um, that's kind of what they're looking for right now. Why don't you just come up 
and you know they'll they'll pick you up at the airport and and it, you're just really gonna you know see me and we'll I'll take you to dinner and you know meet some po- folks and <laughs> sounds like a bait and switch see, yeah <laughs> just kind of say and it wasn't a bait and switch you know I you know I came up and I got to you know interview and and meet with people and and so what that's what they were looking for at the time was was essentially a community um, position for the Elder Scrolls Online um, which I found out while I was there and um and I just. I, I kind of wanted to go back to community because I knew that um, I really enjoyed the job. It, there, the opportunity at the time was just huge. Number one is a huge IP, Elder Scrolls Online. I felt like there was definitely an opening in the MMO industry for a big IP to come in and, and do something really extraordinary. At the time, Zenimax was not publishing so many online games. Mm-hmm. They didn't really have... a you know, really robust customer service department and a really robust, you know, uh, platform department. And they had to build everything. It was, it was building everything from scratch. And when you've built things or when you've, you've worked on games, especially online games where everything was already kind of set up before you got there, you build up this giant backlog of things that you would never do if you ever had to do it again. And so the opportunity to like, do it right this time, we're going to do it right this time. And we're going to, you know, and yeah. I'm going to take all these learnings and That's we're going to, and it's exciting. And it was a big IP and it was with Paul, who is definitely one of my, my favorite folks to work with of all time. And there were other people up here, Zeb Cook, mm-hmm. um, had worked on city of villains. Um, and so I'd worked with Zeb and he's just an amazing guy. And there were a bunch of other people that essentially I had worked with Todd Keister was producer, um, on Elder Scrolls online that I had worked with at NC soft. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, there's a lot of really smart people who have experience. Um, and it was just an amazing opportunity. So I, I went ahead and took it and, and came up to do that. And it was just a whole other, other world, um, being up here and, 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 and moving and, and, and doing the whole thing and doing everything from scratch. Um, and so that's how I sort of joined Zenimax. So uh, just for people who are listening, uh, Zenimax is probably best known as Bethesda, right? Mm-hmm. Zenimax is actually mm-hmm. the publisher name. Uh, but Bethesda you know, is a, a huge company. They've done huge games. So what, what, what does it look like running community on a game that doesn't exist? And a game that has <laughs> no community. Like yeah. you're coming in a game that's not announced. Nobody knows yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Well, there's not much you can really do before that, right? <laughs> like so all the things that you do before that is, are, is basically planning. You, you know, you, you have the general schedule of when things are supposed to be announced and then when things are supposed to potentially go into a, an, an alpha, a friends and family. Mm-hmm. So you do sort of the way the beta thing usually works is that for a, a games as a service, you start with an internal alpha, which is people in the company. Um, and then you do a friends and family, which is generally, as it says on the 10, friends and family of the development staff. And, you know, you let those people kind of play in and then you, you know, sort of start rolling out to public after that. So you have the general schedule. Um, and then you sort of start to plan around that and you sort of make general decisions about what you want your interactions with the community to be like. What do you want your relationship to be like with the community? There are people who decide, hey, we want our relationship to be a little more of a corporate relationship where, you know, we, we sort of speak in more of a royal we kind of a way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we definitely, 
um, decide who talks to the community and sort of approve things that people say and what is said and when it's said and very sort of managed uh-huh. experience. And then there are folks that decide, hey, anybody at the studio can talk to the community. They can talk to them essentially about anything other than things that we've decided we're going to save or and it's a very one-to-one relationship and very honest and very, I mean, it, there's just a different, there's a couple different ways you can approach your relationship with your player base. Does one work better than the other in your opinion? It really depends on your game. Yeah. It really depends on your game. It really depends on, you know, your company. It depends on your IP. It depends on there's a lot the of brand. Sure. Like there's a lot of considerations and that's what a community professional does mm-hmm. is make that estimation about how you're supposed to interact with the community based on all of those different factors. Um, and then also a big part of that is the personality of the develop- the developer itself. So that's what you do is that you sort of, you figure out the tone, you figure out, hey, are we going to be, are we going to build our own community infrastructure platform for people to come to us? Or are we going to leverage the social media sphere and the community and go to them? So this right. is like, are we building internal forums that people can come right. to, or are we having a Reddit thread? Right, that, that and and you can out? make different decisions about that as well. There's a there's a couple different reasons why you would or wouldn't want to do either of those things. Um, you know, if if you let the community essentially drive the community and it's more external. Um, it's a lot less work. <laughs> you don't have to moderate those things. Yeah, it's you don't also have, a lot you know, less managed. It's a lot less managed right. and people can say whatever they want. And, you know, if you have a lot of kind of folks that are essentially volunteers kind of doing these things, they can decide to up and leave and go do something else because Hearthstone's cool or, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. um, and so there's a lot less control. And so it's all about sort of making that estimation of what you want for the game. And so that's what you do is you, you figure out all those things, you decide what you're going to do, you hire staff, you get everybody educated on the game and the timelines, you work with marketing and, and sales and, and PR about what are you going to do for the announcement of the game? What are you going to do? You know, what does the beta look like? How are you going to do that? How many people you work with engineering to decide, Hey, how many people do we need to stress the systems? Mm -hmm. When do we need them? How does that work? How do you take feedback? What channels do they come in? How does that get processed? How does it get rolled back to the dev studio? Like Mm -hmm. you just, try to figure all those things out and decide how you're going to do them. And of course they all work perfectly when the game ships, right? The first time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I I did, I wanted to transition a little bit on to uh, what you're doing now, which is live services. So Mm -hmm. evidently you've set up the community too well because somebody came to you one day and said, Hey, all this is cool, but now you need to run the game. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't quite like that, (laughs) but it was a little bit like that. Um, So I think one of the reasons they actually hired me for the community gig was that I had a lot of experience running betas. Um, So I'd run, I'd help run the City of Heroes beta and then run the City of Villains beta and then run the Tabula Rasa beta, 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 beta. Um, And that was one of the things they were looking for was someone that had experience kind of doing that thing and knew how to set those up. And um, so I did that as community directors, like made decisions about, Hey, engineering, tell me how many people you need to stress a system. Hey, marketing and PR, tell me how many people you need to promote. Um, and I would, you know, work with folks to understand how many people needed to be in what waves and at what times and, you know, all those kinds of things. So when I did that, that's actually very much a running a live service at that point. And yeah, you turn it off sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you would turn it on for a week or for however long you needed to run the beta for. Mm-hmm. And, and then you're sort of responsible for, 
hey, it's running and everybody's saying their crap is crash, crashing out or, you know, and, and figuring out those things, escalating them back to the development mm -hmm. team, getting fixes, figuring out how you're, are you going to fix it right now? Is that going to happen next beta? Like, what can you fix now? Mm -hmm. What can you fix later? And that process and that exercise of that um, is essentially what live services does in a lot of ways. And also you're also planning events, mm -hmm. which is what live services does and, and helping and making sure that we're ready to go. Are we ready for this beta or not? Did, did everybody plug in everything they were supposed to plug in? Did we set the whitelisting right? Did we and do all the entitlements on the back end of the accounts? Mm -hmm. did, did we send out all of the emails to invite all these people? Do they have the codes? Is CS ready? Do they know how to answer the question? Like just all of the hundred little details that you have to make sure are all set up to run an event. Um, and so I did that a bunch of times. And then when we got closer to ship, we were actually trying to hire folks to do that job for mm -hmm. live. Um, and it, there are very few people that do that in the industry. Yeah, there, <laughs> there really few. are, yeah. Um, and very few people with experience doing that. And sort of the more people we interviewed and the more we got closer to ship, the more we were like, uh, so what are we going to do? And um, basically at that point, I had decided that that was a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, I bet you regret saying that now. <laughs> I don't, no, actually. I, don't. I really don't. Um, and, you know, it sort of looked like we needed to find someone to do that. And, and some folks had said, you know, you, you know, you would be really good at that. And um, it sort of, one day I remember Matt Fiber, who's at a studio, sat me down in his office and was like, so do you want to do this thing? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you know, you have to tell people no sometimes and you have to kind of be an asshole at times. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, man, I, I think I, I think I can handle it. <laughs> so, yeah. And so at that point, um, basically community transitioned over to different leadership. And then I basically took over as life services director. So this is one thing that that's kind of amazed me. I mean, obviously I've been making games for a while and, and for so long, in my career, the game was the development team. You know, it was uh, the entire studio was development. You would develop the game, you would ship it, and, and then you'd go on to the next game. And once I started getting into online games, and, and especially recently uh, with Elder Scrolls Online, I kind of walked in and I realized how many other people are involved now mm. in running a game where the the development staff is becoming almost a minority in mm -hmm. in, in uh, game studios where there are just so many people involved with keeping the machine running. It's almost like what the the big challenge used to be making the game. You know that that's a huge mm -hmm. challenge. I don't want to diminish that. It's an insane challenge. But now it's just well, that's the given. And what is the yeah support now, system now? For that's that. like step one of right. twenty. You know, you, mm -hmm. I come out. We you know my my teams. You know the the development teams in the, the studio. We've made a product, and we're oh my god, we're we're done. This is amazing. And then we hand it off to this huge group of people who do amazing <laughs> work, and you actually make stuff happen. It's no longer like we don't we don't close the loop anymore at all. It goes off to you guys. So, uh, so what is live services? Can you? I, I, I don't know if you can sum that up easily, but you're not making the game, but you're running it. You're yeah, so, everything run. Yeah, I had to explain this to my mom. <laughs> oh, yeah, my, that's good. My mom listens to the podcast. Yeah. So. so, and you've talked about this in the previous podcast about how you tell your mom what you do, right? Like, so the way I explained it to my mom was, I was like, I was like, so okay, so like they make the game, right? And she's like, okay. And I was like, all right, so. And then, you know, you put the game up on 
servers and that run the game. And then there's a website for the game and there's a billing system and account system. And then there's like security people that make sure people can't break into the game and like all this kind of stuff. And there are lawyers that make sure that, you know, that people have agreed to the end user license agreement. And and she's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, so my job is that I'm responsible for making sure that all those things are up, running, taking money, people can log in, they can play the game. And if they can't do that, then it's my job to not sleep until they can. And she was like, why did you take that job? <laughs> well, that sounds terrible. But this is true. You know, we're, we're sitting here at the bar and we're talking. And every time your phone lights up, I look at it thinking like, oh, my God, did something break? Like, yeah. this is, Because you really are that guy. You, you are the guy who you, if, you know, once we've made the game, once it's running, it's up to you. If, if something goes down. They call you if yeah. if somebody can't log into the PC version. They call you. Well, so, not to be fair, they call people that work for me. <laughs> well, I guess now you. And then to that sometimes point. they call me <laughs> if it's really bad, but not usually because it's not usually bad. And, and honestly, at this point, I mean, we've been we've been alive for several years now, and mm. and we've iterated towards you know a much a much higher level of sustainability and and just it's a well-oiled machine at this Mm -hmm. point in comparison to you know where it is when you first launch a product um and so you know the hardest time for live services is generally right after a launch um because that's when you know sort of the rubber meets the road and and the game meets the hordes of people who do things you did not expect um, and they do them in ways that are sometimes nefarious and sometimes they just do them in mass quantities in one little area and everything explodes. And so the first, you know, I'd say the first, you know, six months of launch past PC launch um, was definitely a no sleep yeah. time. We didn't have as many staff. We weren't as experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of waking you up at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, Actually, our our, uh, our first night drinking together was at the hotel <laughs> across the street from the studio mm-hmm. right after we shipped console uh, because yeah. we, could, we couldn't go home. We stayed at the hotel for, I don't know, a week or something like that yeah. just so we would be there if something yeah. went You're wrong. You're just on call. And yeah, yep. we're just across the street yeah. from the studio getting completely blotto off of... Uh, Homemade alcohol. Now we had we had people <laughs> covering for us during that particular time. Let's be clear. Let's make that <laughs> clear. <That's true. laughs> we, we had we had a couple hour break. We, we had a schedule yeah. of people that were rotating through. We needed to find a way to get to sleep. Yes. We so yes. Yeah. We yeah for launch we had yeah I had um, several folks that worked for me at that time and we basically made schedules of who was on for any particular time and 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 there was a room and there was a war room that people were in kind of twenty four seven for kind of a week and um yeah it was pretty intense but you know we made it through and it's it's just fun it's just really <laughs> good and so there's so that's what i do but the, you know to your point about there are so many other people that are involved in in making the game and i and i don't think people realize and i've said this already there are lawyers that work for us, right? Who work in the game industry as lawyers. There are salespeople. There yeah. are people who are operations people that make sure that the box that we make gets sent to the, you know, GameStop in Alaska, you know, or whatever. Yeah. There are people who work in human resources. There are people who do, I mean, just all the kind of standard businessy things. You still have to do all those things too. 
And there's a lot of people that that's how they get into the game industry is that Mm -hmm. they do one of those jobs. And a lot of times they stay in those places and they like working in the game industry because it's a super creative environment. People are really passionate about what they do. I think that's the number one thing that differentiates the game industry from some of the more kind of traditional jobs is, you know, a lot of people talk about their jobs and they're like, yeah, this is what I do for a living. And, you know, I'm kind of interested in it or whatever, but not everybody that works there is like, you know, really into the thing that they do and really mm-hmm. super passionate about it. And that covers for a lot of sins in a lot of ways. And, and people will work really hard because they're passionate about something, mm-hmm. even, even the lawyers and even, you know, the marketing people and even, you know, they're, they're really into it and they really love it. And, and that's the juice, right? So that's a really great segue into, you know, ha, you know, advice for yeah how to get into the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we we were, we were talking about this a little bit earlier uh, on one of the breaks where you know, there are game schools out there, but there's nobody going to game school to be a live services director. No. Uh who who are the people out there that uh you you think should turn their head and look at, at video games? I mean, what what skill set is it that uh there's somebody out there, you know, listening who's a project manager, just likes uh, video games. What, what's the skill set to get into live services? I think there's a couple of different skill sets for live services because um, there's a couple of different pieces of it. Um, so there's more of an infrastructure IT backend platform piece of it because you know I'm also responsible for the thing that takes the money and the things mm-hmm. that all the games run on. Um, so there are people that work at places. Um, that are big infrastructure places. I mean, like Google makes giant infrastructures. You know, there are a lot of West Coast folks that, you know, do things that are very live services of software as a service for Oracle or software as a service for whatever. There are people that do this type of job that I do mm. kind of in those industries. And, and those are people that I would look at for live service jobs, you know, coming in in more of an operational role. And those folks are responsible for, you know, pushing the software out, you know, mm-hmm. and putting it up on the servers and doing database upgrades and VM upgrades and, you know, all that kind of stuff and scheduling all that and doing all that. And then there's that project management side of, hey, you know, we've we've got to do this project. A marketing team wants to give away amount with every purchase of $5 or more. Well, that involves a lot of things that involves the game has to have that mount in the game. And then the entitlement system has to have the entitlement that will give that to them. And then the first party system or the billing system has to allow that person to redeem a code or, you know, and it's that sort of, everything as it fits together and how do you manage a project that touches so many different teams. And Mm -hmm. so project management um, can definitely um, people that do those types of things for other companies can potentially um, be interested in the game industry. And then there's a really big need for people that can communicate between business and development. And that's being able to go to a business meeting where you're sitting in a room with these, you know, cross-functional teams of marketing and sales and, and do that type of thing where, hey, GameStop really wants there to be a pre-order exclusive for X. Mm-hmm. How can we, can we get that for them by this timeline and to be able to speak to those business people and communicate, yes, you can, no, you can't. Or you could, but here's the timelines. Here's the things we'd have to do. Here's the general size of the level of effort 
by the way, it's going to cost this much money. How much money does that really mean from a GameStop relationship perspective? It's it's more than just how many units will they sell at GameStop. It's all about the relationship right, with GameStop. Right. How important is that? Um, and be able to work with them and translate that, understand what they care about and why it's important to maintaining the the quality of their vertical. And then come back to the development team and explain, hey, we want to prove you know, mount for this thing. And they're like, why do we have to do this? And it's like, hey, let me explain to you why that's important. Here's the relationship. Here's, you know, here's the reasons why it's Communication important. Communication is just really key there. Well, you have to give a development team the why you're doing something. If you I, don't tell them why, then they can't negotiate for how. I'm, I'm right? kind of laughing in the background because I'm thinking about office space where there's a guy, I take the specs from the I'm the a people person, damn it. To the engineer. <laughs> I have people skills. Why can't you get this here? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we got to wrap up here pretty soon. We're getting kind of late and uh, uh, as always, we uh, we go to the the uh, actual bar after this, and I'm mm-hmm. sure some interesting conversation will happen there. But what the, what's the future of, of live services? What we have, you know, Amazon Web Services coming mm-hmm. in. We have Google Cloud coming in. You know, you kind of have some infrastructure setting up around this. Is is that going to make stuff easier for your job, or is that going to be harder? Is that a new challenge? What how does that work? I think it's interesting. Um, it's very different. I mean, because MMOs are so old school, we did things very old school in the back you know, back in the day of, you know, you had to like physically set up servers and yeah, like, you, there, you there are games yeah, in, in the office, yeah. right? Like, and now, and then, you know, and then there were giant data centers because the games got really big and like, you can't have all that stuff in your building because, you know, what if it sets on fire? Um, <laughs> and then, so, and then now we're moving to sort of cloud and, and what I sort of notice is that a lot of the big infrastructure companies like the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts and, and those kinds of folks are, Really understand that gaming is a vertical, that um, games as a service is a thing that is super, super popular. Social is really strong, um, but they need big infrastructure. And a lot of times the game folks that are making the games, they just want to make games. They really don't want to have to think a whole lot about the servers and and taking care of their servers and getting them upgraded and and managing them and and it's a lot of overhead and and so I think you see a lot of these companies um, starting to build infrastructure for this business vertical um, and they want to try to make it as plug and play as possible. They essentially want you to be able to hand over the exe of the game and the server and stuff like that and you to just hand it to them and then they scale everything in the background and you treat it as a commodity service. Um, and then what they're doing on top of that is essentially providing value add middle layers of, oh, we'll also ingest all this data for you and mm-hmm. put it into our machine learning and mm-hmm. then you'll know what your players are doing and then we'll also allow you to dynamically update your content in the game so that you can change prices and you know do events and you know all that kind of stuff. And I think more and more those big companies want to provide that as a service to the game industry so that the game industry can focus on making the game because mm-hmm. that's super hard too, right? Um, so f- to me, that's what the future looks like is is more and more of those companies providing those things, developers, you know, hopefully spending more and more time focused on the game and less time focused on the plumbing. And then there's the, 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 the life for life services. It's that middle of understanding what those platform options are, why you would choose them. 
um, how that would affect potentially game development, communicating back to the dev team, those things, and then making sure all those things work kind of going forward and then managing the costs um, and the performance mm -hmm. long term um, for the games. So uh, Joe isn't saying this, but I'm going to to uh, anybody in development who's uh, who might be listening to this. No matter how good you are as an artist or a designer or a programmer, uh, make friends with somebody like Joe Burp. Because no, <laughs> no, no, no matter how good your game is, you're going to need somebody to run it, and uh, he does a fantastic job. So oh, thank you, Joe. Uh, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. I look forward to seeing what's next. Joe, thank Absolutely. you so much. Thank you guys. It's been, it's been had a great really time. Great. Thank you. Yep. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll close it out and uh, go get some beers. Uh, that's it. Till next time. Thanks for listening to D3 Podcast. By the way, if anybody's got more uh, listener uh, questions, uh, drinks at D3Podcast.com or hit us up on the Facebook or the Twitter or the Instagram, and uh, maybe we can include your question on the next uh, episode. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you.